You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 92. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide into worlds of the strange and the fantastic. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. We're going to do things a little bit backwards today, for reasons that I'll explain shortly. So, let's kick off this episode with your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,074 words this week, over the course of eight hours, for an average writing speed of 634 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 109 days without breaking my chain. I'm now in Chapter 52 of The Lost and the Least. I'm coming to terms with the fact that this book won't be ready for publication in time for Balticon like I had hoped. I'm still confident that I'll have the manuscript done by then, but the beta readers will need time to look at it and give me feedback. After I hear back from them, I'm expecting it'll take me a month or so to get the book ready for publication. This is a bummer, but I'd rather take the time to get this book right than to rush it out the door before it's ready. Starting this coming week, I'm going to switch over to working on the Metamore City Live audio drama again, so I can make sure I deliver the script to my actors well before Balticon. Looking back at the month of February, I wrote a total of 16,252 words. I wrote on all 28 days, but I only averaged 580 words per day. That's the lowest daily word count I've had since I started doing this podcast. Because of this, February was one of my least productive months to date. Running these statistics was a big wake-up call for me. I need to ramp up my game again. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new donor this week. Please welcome Jordan. Remember, becoming a patron is the best way to support this show and help me keep bringing it to you. For just $3 a month, you can get sneak peeks, bonus artwork, story previews, and weekly author commentaries. All you need is a credit card or a PayPal account. Go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester, check out the reward levels, and make a pledge today. One last announcement before we get to this week's story. Next Saturday, on March 11th, I'm going to be interviewing Philippa Ballantyne about her new novel, Immortal Progeny. I'm very excited about this interview, but I need your help. If you go over to my Facebook author page, you'll see that there's an event posting for this interview, and I've put out a poll asking for people to submit questions they want me to ask Pip during the interview. As of the time I'm recording this, I haven't gotten any questions from you guys yet. So if you want to help out with preparing this interview head on over there and make some suggestions. You'll be able to watch this interview as I'm doing it on YouTube Live. Follow the link on the Facebook event and it'll take you where you need to be. I hope to see you guys there. And now it's time for this week's story. Back in 2010, I started writing a story that was like nothing I had ever done before. It was a weird fiction story with an unreliable narrator, set in my hometown of San Francisco. I wasn't ready to follow where this narrator was leading me, though, and after writing the first few hundred words, I set it down. A few years later, I added a bit more to it, 
but again, something held me back from finishing. There was something about this story that disturbed me. Something dark. I didn't know if I wanted to be the one to bring this creation into the world. Finally, in 2015, I faced that fear. The story had haunted me for years. It refused to leave me alone. I had had enough. I would confront this thing that had whispered to me from the darkest shadows of my subconscious. I would drag it out into the light once and for all and see the shape of it. And I did it. I finished the story. I followed that dark voice all the way down to its inevitable conclusion, from the glittering towers of the city to a dark and nameless place in an ancient and forgotten wood. Shaken and drained, I put the completed story on the shelf and went back to the sunnier world of the lost and the least, where Kate and her friends were busy trying to stop a string of serial murders. Then, this week, I went back to that story I had written. I read it straight through from beginning to end for the first time. And you know what? I think it works. I'm not going to pretend for a minute that this story is for everybody. Some of you are going to hate it. There's sex, there's violence, there's some damn disturbing imagery. And to be completely honest, it's a story that really ought to be experienced in one sitting, but it's too long for a single episode of this podcast. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break this story in half, but I'm going to do it in a way that provides minimal interruption to the story's mood. This episode will end with a short musical tag and no outro babble. Next week's episode will start the same way this one ends. No babble, just a musical intro followed by the story, with my usual commentary after the story is finished. That way, if you listen to the two parts back-to-back, you'll get the full, uninterrupted story experience. Before we begin, let me remind you that this podcast is copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press, and is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. For more information on the terms of this license, please visit creativecommons.org. And lastly, if you're listening with children, turn this off now. And now, here's the story. Maternal Instinct by Chris Lester They say you can find absolutely anything on the internet. The authenticity and good condition of said anything, however, is by no means guaranteed. This caveat applies to rare movies, import CDs, collectible knick-knacks of all kinds, but most especially to men. Online dating is to romance what bottom-trawling is to fishing. A woman in search of a prospective mate can sift through hundreds of messages a week, only to find that her catch consists mostly of trash, filth, and a few sickly and hideous specimens that no sane woman would allow within a hundred yards of the dinner table. Now, occasionally you may find a worthy candidate— but the strong, healthy, and good-looking ones are usually the first to wriggle out of the nets. In fairness, I must admit to a disadvantage on this front. 
Few men are interested in dating a woman whose belly swells with the late stages of pregnancy, no matter how comely her features. Single motherhood may no longer hold the crippling stigma of my mother's generation, but the Damoclean threat of paternal responsibility sends most of the finer specimens running for the doors. Which is why, after two months of frustrated and fruitless searching, I now sit across the table from Jonathan and hardly know what to do with myself. Cindy? Yoo-hoo, Cindy. John waves his spoon in front of my eyes. What? Sorry. I blink and straighten in my chair. That must be a really good Sunday, he says, his dark eyes twinkling. Which sphere of heaven did I just call you back from? I laugh, but I can feel myself blushing at my own foolishness. I cover it by taking another bite of the ice cream, rolling it around in my mouth and making exaggerated moaning noises. He laughs with me, and the moment is salvaged, if not my dignity. It is very good, I admit. Thank you for bringing me here. I've only lived in the city a few months, and somehow I never got around to it. John shrugs. Civic duty. You can't be a San Franciscan and not visit Ghirardelli Square. I look around at the crowds of people filling the little plaza, and the twin lines stretching out the door of the chocolate shop. Apparently you can't be from anywhere else and not come here either. It is kind of a tourist trap on days like this, John admits. But there's something about it that just makes it feel, I don't know, comforting. I turn my eyes to the fountain in the center of the plaza. A bronze mermaid holds her suckling infant to her breast, while all around the fountain the human children clamber and play under their parents' watchful eyes. Yes, I see what you mean. John follows my glance, smiles briefly, then turns back to me with a considering look. You'll have one of those soon yourself. How much longer is it? I shrug. About two months. He's growing so fast now. As if hearing my words, my son writhes and turns over inside me. It must be amazing. John's expression is a mixture of curiosity and wistful longing. This is an experience he can never know. It's exhausting, I say, and frustrating. I'm hungry all the time. I have to go to the bathroom every five minutes. I can't find a comfortable way to sleep. I smile. But then I imagine holding my son for the first time, and I find the strength to keep going. His mouth twitches downward. I sense that I have disrupted some inner fantasy of his, the poor, deluded man. Ah, well. At least he's healthy and good-looking. Sanity is overrated. Somewhat to my surprise, John calls me the next day. Mutual pleasantries are exchanged, and a second date is offered and accepted. Recreational activities are somewhat limited for a woman in my condition, but San Francisco has no shortage of options where entertainment is concerned. We settle on a sunset cruise around the bay, complete with four-course dinner and non-alcoholic champagne substitute. John looks delectable in his tailored suit and silk tie. My own maternity wear is a bit more hoi polloi, but it shows off my slender arms and legs and the prominent curve of my belly. As I suspected, John approves. He breaks into a grin at the sight of me, white teeth flashing against amaretto skin. 
You look magnificent, he says, embracing me and giving me a chaste peck on the lips. As do you, I say truthfully. As does this. My sweeping hand takes in the spotless deck, the dining tables covered with white linen, china and crystal, the string quartet warming up on the small stage. This boat provides intimate dining for only a dozen couples, which means the per-plate cost is probably twenty times what I had expected when John suggested it. I hope you didn't have to mortgage anything for this. John chuckles, takes my arm, and guides me to our table. I wanted to show you a good time, he says. He's still overtly confident, but there is a slight hesitance in his eyes, he is wondering if I am the sort of woman who is put off by extravagant displays of wealth. I smile at him to put him at ease. I suspect you will succeed. He grins back, and the tension fades. I recommend the crabs if you like seafood. They bring it in fresh off the boats. Hmm, tempting. But I'm hungry for something more warm-blooded. I touch my fingers lightly to my belly. My son's appetite for red meat is inexhaustible. I order the twelve-ounce ribeye, as rare and red as the chef will allow. I leave the hors d'oeuvres and salad course mostly untouched, but when the smell of the approaching steak hits my nostrils, my son shudders in excitement, and my hunger abruptly turns ravenous. John watches with bemused delight as I wolf down my meal. I guess this means you like it, he says. I moan around a mouthful of warm, delicious flesh. Chew, swallow, water to wash it down. It's perfect, I tell him. John dissects his crabs slowly, and more daintily than I ever would have thought possible. The kitchen has thoughtfully served the crustaceans with their shells already opened, sparing him the task of smashing the beasts open with a hammer. I'm almost disappointed— the idea of this polished, manicured man doing something so brutal and visceral is strangely appealing. John's slow pace means that I am finished with my entree long before he is, which gives me time to ponder the man and our surroundings at length. So what exactly do you do, Jonathan? I gesture at the towers of the Fidei, visible now off our starboard bow. I know you work in the city. Considering the expense of this meal— that suggests a career in either technology or finance. Given your taste in clothing and your exquisite table manners, I suspect the latter. John chuckles again. He raises his wine in a salute and takes a drink before speaking. I'm very astute. Yes, I'm a hedge fund manager. I raise my eyebrows. You have an appetite for risk, then. The greater the risk, the greater the reward. What about you? I manage assets for my church. He pauses, his glass halfway to his lips. Church? he asks, suspicion immediately filling his eyes. <laughs> Not the Scientologists, though I imagine they must have come after you more than once. Constantly, John says sourly. All right, so what's your church? It has gone by many names over the centuries. The original name is practically unpronounceable for English speakers. We call it the Church of the Great Mother. Ah, John says, knowingly. So you're pagan, then. Elsewhere in America, that might come off sounding pejorative. 
But in San Francisco, being pagan is almost as au courant as being an iPhone user. The true original pagans, I agree, long before those upstarts Gardner and Valiente came along. John swirls the wine in his glass thoughtfully. God is a woman, he muses. It makes sense. Women have the power to create life, after all. His eyes drift to my belly. I've always thought there was something supernatural about that. Perhaps there is a bit of the supernatural about it, bringing a soul into this world that has never existed before. But don't forget, the male has a crucial role to play as well. Not necessarily. There are lizards and fish that give birth without any males. There's no species where the males can reproduce by themselves. I raise my eyebrows and my glass of fake champagne. Clearly you've given this a lot of thought, Jonathan. Most men are not so fascinated by pregnancy. Is there a story here I should know about? A blush colors John's cheeks. I was hoping to talk about this another time. You know, if things seem to be going well between us. Oh, now I have to know. He looks down at his wine again, nodding absently. Yeah, yeah, I guess you do. He looks back up at me. I'm sterile, Cindy. Ah, a premature vasectomy in your reckless days of youth. He nods sadly. I was just starting out, broke and desperate to make a name for myself. I didn't want anything holding me back. He shakes his head. It was a stupid decision. Short-sighted. Now I've reached the level where I'd like to start a family, and I can't. I frown. But surely they can reverse the procedure. Normally, yes, John says with a grimace. But the doctor I went to back then apparently did a hack job of it. There's too much scar tissue now to reverse it. He shrugs. Maybe they'll figure out a way someday, but for now I'm out of the running. I nod, considering this. And like anything you might have wanted, the desire increased a hundredfold when you were told you couldn't have it. Perverse, isn't it? John says. I smirk. Some might use that word. I run a hand over my belly, feeling my son twitch in response to the touch. But one man's perversion is another man's kink. John's blush turns even redder. I didn't mean it like that. I can't help it. I laugh at him. Oh, it's all right, John. Everyone has sexual proclivities. To tell you the truth, I find it gratifying that someone still finds me desirable like this. John follows my hand with his eyes, drinking in the sight of my pregnant body. Cindy, any man who doesn't find you desirable is an idiot. Hmm. I reach over the table and pull him toward me for a kiss. This time I make sure it's much more than a peck on the lips. After releasing him, I smile and lightly push him back to his seat. Flattery will get you everywhere, but you must know my son comes first. Everything I do is for him now. If you want to be part of our lives, you have to accept that. I reach over and take his hand, squeezing it. I'm not looking for a fair-weather lover, Jonathan. I'm in the market for a long-term commitment. Call me old-fashioned, but that's what I'm after. I understand. Obviously, that kind of commitment takes time, but it's something that I want, too. His eyes go distant for a moment, weighing his words. 
Can I ask you something? What's the story with the baby's father? Ah. I sit back, and for a moment, my mind is pleasurably filled with the memories of my son's conception. My son was fathered by the great high priest of our church. We believe he is the incarnation of the great mother in mortal form. John looks at me quizzically. A male priest is the incarnation of a goddess? I chuckle. It's complicated. The great god is both male and female. Are you familiar with the god the Templars called Baphomet? John's brow wrinkles in thought. Maybe. Is that the goat-headed thing? The one the Christians got confused with the devil? That's the one. Baphomet was depicted with the head of a goat, the wings of an eagle, the phallus of a man, and the breasts of a woman. That image of God as both masculine and feminine was something they stole from us. Okay, got it, John says. His eyes have gone distant again. Careful. Calculating. So, this great high priest, does he get a lot of women pregnant? It's not like the FLDS, either, I assure him. We are not bound to him in polygamous marriage. We are ordinary members of the church who were offered the chance to bear his children. It was a great blessing, but it is my life and my choice. His eyes center on mine, as if looking for any sign of falsehood or a hidden agenda. So this priest won't come along later asking for his son back? If you get married, your husband will be able to adopt him? I smile. I expect my son will one day join the priesthood himself. But in childhood, no. The great high priest will not interfere in your relationship with the child. I study him closely. I'm sorry if this is too much, too fast. I just need you to know where I'm coming from. I'm completely devoted to my child. And if you can't be on board with that, then it's better to know now. I understand. He smiles at me, his eyes gentle. Give me some time to think about it. Of course. I gesture once again at the sun inside me. Just don't wait too long. I'll have another mouth to feed very soon. I go home to my own bed that night. The next morning I receive a message from Jonathan, thanking me for a lovely evening and promising to get in touch soon. A week passes, then two. I fear that I have scared him off, like so many before him. My son grows ever larger and more active, and I can feel a dread growing in my heart at the same time. What if I cannot find a suitable mate? What if I am alone when my son comes into the world? I dare not think about it. My midwife stops in to see me at our church's business office in Pacific Heights. She is one of the faithful, so she understands both my son's parentage and the special needs he is sure to have. She urges me to renew my search for a partner. Perhaps it's time to reconsider your non-negotiables, dear, she says. I scoff. Lower my standards, you mean? Well, you are only six weeks from delivery. That isn't much time to start over if this banker fellow has lost interest. My son will have the best, I say confidently. He deserves nothing less. Then if I were you, I'd make sure this man can't forget about you. Do you know anything he wants? Anything you can make use of? Clenching my jaw, I nod once. Yes. Yes, I do.
It isn't difficult to find Jonathan's place of work. A brief search online reveals his smiling face above the address for his hedge fund's local office. I catch the Crosstown Muni bus to the Fidei and arrive there shortly before closing time. While in the elevator, I check my makeup and tighten the belt on my long khaki trench coat. When the door opens, I stride out confidently in my three-inch heels, willing myself not to wobble or lose my balance. "'Can I help you?' asks the receptionist. The tension around her eyes says that she'd been hoping to clock out early, and I have foiled her plans. I give her my warmest smile. "'Hi. I'm here to see Mr. Wallace. Could you let him know Cindy is here?' The receptionist's smile stays fixed in place, as her eyes scan me skeptically up and down. One moment, ma'am. She picks up the phone, speaks into it softly. After a few seconds, she returns it to the cradle. Mr. Wallace will be right out, ma'am. Thank you. I appreciate it. I wait. My nerves are telling me to pace the room, but my common sense tells me that a very pregnant woman in heels should keep walking to an absolute minimum. I grip the edge of the receptionist's desk and try not to drum my fingers. John walks out a minute or two later, looking a little confused, but nonetheless delighted. Cindy, hey, what brings you to my neck of the woods? I smile warmly and embrace him. Hey, John, I'm glad I caught you before you left. Do you have some time to talk? Absolutely. He turns to his receptionist. Sheila, you can go ahead and call it a night. I'll lock up on our way out. Sheila looks relieved. Thanks, Mr. Wallace. Have a good night. I plan to. He flashes her that big, bright smile, then leads me through winding hallways to his office. He holds the door for me, and I step through, taking a look around. Clearly, this office is intended for meetings with clients, and not just John's own private work. The walls are lined with bookshelves and dark wainscoting. The carpet's a deep navy blue accented with gold. The room is lit warmly from freestanding lamps instead of harsh, overhead fluorescence. Broad windows framed with heavy curtains give a breathtaking view of Treasure Island and the Bay Bridge. To my right is John's desk, a massive L of some rich, dark, tropical wood. To my left, a conversation area. Two high-backed armchairs facing a sumptuous-looking leather couch across a coffee table that looks like an old sailor's map. An assortment of nautical art pieces and artifacts help round out the theme. Yes, this will do nicely. Come on in, take a load off, John says, gesturing to the couch. So, what's going on? Instead of sitting down, I come close to him and reach up for a kiss. I place my hand behind his head and deepen it, pressing my tongue gently but insistently past his lips. He welcomes me in, and our tongues dance for a sweet, lingering moment before we part. I missed you, I say. I start playing with the collar of his shirt, curling my fingers inside to brush his skin. I haven't been able to stop thinking about you. I hear his breath catch just a little, but he quickly steadies himself. I've been thinking a lot about you, too, he admits. I'm just... I'm trying to be careful. I know you're looking for a serious commitment, and I don't want you to get your hopes up if I'm not sure. I put one finger to his lips, stopping him. I know what I said. 
and I am looking for something serious. But I'm also a woman with needs, and I haven't been touched in a long time. I unbelt my coat and let it fall to the floor. Underneath, I'm wearing my black underwire bra with the lace trim, the one that makes my breasts look magnificent, and a little black skirt that stops a few inches above my knees. My pregnant belly curves out dramatically in between, the skin taut and gleaming in the lamplight. I see his eyes dilate with desire, drinking in the sight of me. I smile seductively. We can figure out the rest later, I say. Right now, I want you to fuck me. He doesn't need any more coaxing than that. He takes my face in his hands and kisses me passionately, and I methodically strip him of his clothes. I lead him over to the couch, where we spend the next two hours enjoying each other's bodies in all the ways my cumbersome form permits. John is creative, I'll give him that, and as enthusiastic as a bridegroom on his wedding night. I may have engaged in some acting to bring us to this moment, but there is no artifice in the orgasms that crash over my sweat-soaked body. As we lay side by side on the couch, basking in the afterglow, I take John's hand and guide it to my belly. Feel that, I say, softly. My son is churning inside of me. I can't imagine what the flood of hormones coursing through my body must have felt like for him, but he is awake now and making his presence known. He reaches out, pressing his limbs against the pliant walls of his cage. John's eyes are wide in wonder. Oh my God, that's amazing. What's it feel like for you? My son strikes out hard at John's hand, and I can't help wincing. Like someone's doing martial arts inside of me sometimes. But yes, it is amazing. John shifts around, scoots down the couch, and presses his ear against my flesh. I can hear his heartbeat. It's so strong. He's going to be big. If you're around in a few more weeks, you'll get to meet him. I can feel John relax against me, and his hand reaches down to caress my leg. I'd like that, he says. And with those words, I feel a tremendous weight lift from me. I will not be alone when my son comes into this world. I lay my hand on John's head, caressing him as he listens to my son's heart. And for the first time in months, I can relax. Relax.